art, activism, education. Welcome to the Creative Justice Lab podcast with your hosts, Dina Olivo and Annie Cohen. We recently had a conversation with Sophia Dawson, a Brooklyn-based artist who also goes by the name Wet Paint. Sophia is an amazing painter, activist, and educator. Sophia can oftentimes be found spending time between her studio, her son, writing letters to political prisoners that are also her subjects, as well as educating incarcerated youth at Rikers Island. Stay tuned to catch our conversation with Sophia as we have an opportunity to witness her work, learn more about her process, and pick her brain. To learn more about Sophia and her work, you can visit our website at creativejusticelab.org. So we're here today with Sophia Dawson. Yes. Artist name. my temporary <laughs> Amazing. Artist name Wet Paint. Um, and we're so excited. We're like really thrilled to just be hanging out with you, <laughs> watching you do what you do. And yes. You guys are both really comfortable taking your shoes off. <laughs> <laughs> that took no time. Not at all. It's like I'm hanging out with my sister from a yeah, that's what I'd rather I meet someone I can take off my shoes than a restaurant any day. So this is good. So tell us all about you. Tell us where you grew up, your story. Okay, so good parts or the bad parts? All the parts. All the parts. Everything yeah. important. I'm Don't leave anything out. Okay. <laughs> so um, I'm born and raised in Brooklyn. Sadly, I'm still in Brooklyn. Even though Brooklyn is no longer Brooklyn. I don't know what it is now. Uh, it's changed a lot over the years. Um, I have both of my folks are from Jamaica. And uh, I guess I grew up with the love for West Indian culture and food. And also, like, my parents never worked. Like, I never, until recently, I guess maybe over the past five or ten years, witnessed them working for other people. But growing up, they always ran their own things. So we used to have a um, Jamaican restaurant in Crown Heights, Brooklyn, and that was fun. Well, growing up there, like, obviously I didn't help out. I was a kid at this time, so I used to just go there for fun and games. But I saw my parents, like, really just taking ownership of, you know, their careers, which was cool and really healthy. And then shortly after that, they opened a plant store and a pet shop in Park Slope, Brooklyn. <laughs> and Park Slope, Brooklyn, back then, like today, Park Slope is a place where everybody who's coming to New York to live and mm-hmm. to, because it's, I guess it's, I don't know. It's rated high or something. Yeah. I don't know what it, what it is, but it's, it's weird. It's like a hit place. Gentrification. It's like, yes, right. gentrification. It's, um, <laughs> it's completely different from from what it was when I grew up, which is a good and bad thing. Um, good because, you know, there were a lot of drug dealers. I remember, like, my parents used to have to be really cool with the drug dealers so that they wouldn't rob our store at night. Ooh. And um, it's not funny, but it's funny to think about it. And, um, but then... Not cool because, you know, when my son was born, I took him to Park Slope. He go, he actually goes to school in Park Slope now mm-hmm. because we lie about our address every year. Shh. We'll okay. edit that out. No, it's fine. I don't care. They, <laughs> they need to know. They need to know like, what people have to go through so that their kids can get a quality education. Okay. And so, yeah, when he was little, I was taking him to the parks that I grew up going to and this and that. And these, I won't curse them out. Uh, on the record, but <laughs> these people were like looking at us 
they were so surprised that I wasn't pushing, uh, like nannying somebody's kid. The fact that the kid in the stroller looked like me was like a big deal, and people were staring. It was really crazy. Which is crazy. Even more interesting because this is where you were from, like right? Like this where was I grew up. this was I my to, neighborhood. I used to play Barbie doll <laughs> on the sidewalk. I used to roller skate up and down that sidewalk. Um, and now it's kind of like, what are you doing here? And that's a really hard feeling to deal with. Mm-hmm. Um, speaking of roller skating, I skating is one thing. Like, actually, before I get into skating, let me talk about like my faith life. Um, God is a huge part of my life, and my relationship with Him is the only reason why I'm here today, mm-hmm. literally, because life would have ended by choice a long time ago, just because of the struggle. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like a huge part of my life is praying, fasting, um, reading the scriptures, getting to know them by heart, and trying to figure out the best way to fulfill my purpose on this earth. Mm-hmm. And I really, and I really try to like, when I work with kids or really anybody I come across, I encourage people to think about that because our days are numbered and I believe that everybody's sent here for a specific reason and that there is like a really great joy and peace that you experience when you figure out what that specific reason is and then are able to walk in it. So figuring out is like half the battle and then it's like oh, actually being able to do it um, is another thing. So, yeah. How so would that, you say that that has shaped your, your work? Um, well... You know, the work, all of the work that I'm doing, at least I've done over the past seven years, has like intentionally been work that hopes to serve other people and their goals and dreams, really specifically people who have experienced some type of injustice in any type of way. So I'm talking folks who are wrongfully incarcerated, recent folks who are politically incarcerated, Parents who've lost kids to police brutality and or racism, past or current, or we'll say recent. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, so really tapping into people who are hurting and who are striving against the system, but really like, you know, wicked (laughs) demonic forces that exist in the world Mm -hmm. and trying to figure out how my work can really help them um, by bringing their stories to people who may not get a chance to know who they are or ever come across their names. But also, to like, I'm learning that the work can be a ministry in itself. So, you know, what happens when a mom who's lost a child to police brutality helps to paint a mural on police brutality and gets to paint a child? I think that there's, like, a spiritual transaction that happens. Mm-hmm. And I really want to learn more and more about how to facilitate that. And I take that into the classroom me. I think, I literally, like, I'll pray over my supplies, I'll pray over everything we use, uh-huh. and hope that, in hopes that when the kids walk away from the workshop today, they'll feel different than they came coming in. And that's why yesterday, like, we started with a check-in, and I always start that way, because I need to know where my students are today. Uh-huh. And then we check out also. That's what we, we didn't get a chance to do that yesterday, but... Uh-huh. Um, checking out is important because you learn if somebody's like spirit was lifted or lowered by being in your workshop. Oh my God, this brings up so many questions to me. I want to know <laughs> yes. how does this affect how you 
as a black woman, mm-hmm. you are, how do you mother your black son? Okay. And also, and then I, ha- I know, but then I have questions <laughs> about your teaching and yeah, what does that like? <laughs> and because I want people to also know what you do other than painting, but right. also like you're walking the walk and the talk, and like mm-hmm. you are living and breathing yes. your work in well, many different ways. Well, I think it's also Ooh. like beautiful what you were talking about is it's like this sense of catharsis and healing for the person that is like how do you make peace with your oppressor right through art and and like that spiritual component that comes out through expressing it creatively Mm -hmm. it's like like i can't the power the healing that comes out of that Mm -hmm. right yeah um so i'll yeah so I'm much. talking about my son. Yeah, you're fine. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have to talk a lot. But this is good. See, so I was like, let me do what I have to do on the wall and then sit down and be present. <laughs> be present. Um, my son, yeah, there's a lot of tough love. But not really. I mean, I since he was born, I just, went, right after I had him, six months after having him was when I took an African-American history class that changed my life. And really... It was a class, but it was really like one documentary in that class. And uh, because I slept through most of her class because I was pregnant and that's just what happened. <laughs> it wasn't intentional mm-hmm. and she didn't knock me for it. She didn't give me a bad grade. I think she actually was very sympathetic of me. And okay. I don't know. Or maybe she had a similar experience. I don't know how, why this lady had mercy on me, but she did. And um, yeah, so I took that class and then my wake up, my awakening happened there and then like it wasn't too late but I was like damn I'm already a mom mm-hmm. I'm already a mom who's struggling I was like I had days when I was pregnant where I didn't know where, like where my pain was coming from mm-hmm. I my relationship had gotten abusive like towards the end of the pregnancy into my son being born and it was just so much going on like I I had to eat because I was nursing him, but if I wasn't okay. nursing him and buying formula, I don't know how I would have done it. And I was like, I literally left that class shaking that day, like, oh my God. And then I talked, and it was just like an intro. It was just a, a documentary about the Panthers and about what happened to them. Mm-hmm. But also like, I had never seen men and women stand up for people like that before. Like in my lifetime, I had never seen that before, mm-hmm. that documentary. Amy yeah. yeah, and I came, I came across the Panthers probably like once, one sentence somewhere mm-hmm. in elementary or middle school. Like that's it. Or maybe it was, high, it was probably high school. So I just didn't know. And after I learned, I started talking to people and trying to figure out like, hey, you know, maybe I'm the only one who doesn't know because I don't pay attention to history class. But it was like a lot of people didn't know what really happened. They knew what the news said happened. They didn't know the okay. real story. And I guess so for coming from that, like being 21 and learning my history for the first time, I was 22 at the time. I was like, my son cannot not know his history. And I don't force it down his throat. Like there's a lot, like I'll play music for him and I'll be like, who's this? And he'll be the first to say one I know and then be like, Nina Simone. And he'll get on the second journey. Mm-hmm. Like, so and it's how not, old is he again? He's seven. Seven years old and he knows 
The difference yeah. between Lauren Hill and Nina Simone. <laughs> yeah. Love it. <laughs> and so, like, it's just little things. So, like, and it's not like come and listen to the music. It's like, mm-hmm. okay, you're at the studio with me today. This is what we're listening to. Mm-hmm. And eventually he'll ask. Like, I think he was into Nina Simone because he's like, wow, she really sounds like a guy. And I was like, I guess she does. <laughs> that's, that's how we got to know her voice. Like, it's like, this is a lady singer? Yeah. But, um,. Much. But yeah, and then like just bringing him around everything that I do. I just don't want to ever lie to him or not prepare him for what what this life has in store, um, good and bad. Mm-hmm. And like that's really coming from a lot, really coming from the struggle I went through while carrying him because like life went from being like peachy clean to really real, mm-hmm. really fast. Um, I don't lie to him. I've never lied to him. I always tell the truth, even if I don't want to. Or it's something I don't think he needs to know right now. I'd rather tell him or I'll be like, I'll tell you when you're 15. Mm-hmm. I'll do that, but I won't let him. Yeah. Um, never done baby talk. I always talk just like I'm talking now to him. And now he's a talker, which is really annoying. <laughs> but, yeah. He probably has so many questions. Gosh. They do. He has a lot of comments now. He like, oh. critiques my work. What's his name? Pharaoh. Beautiful. Thank you. Um, I never pacified him. Um, he's always allowed to scream at the top of his lungs until either he calmed down or fell asleep. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's also like, I think kids learn how to talk quickly when they realize like, oh, they're just going to clean me mm-hmm. or put me to bed mm-hmm. or feed me. Mm-hmm. Like They learn that quick. And then when they want something else, they learn how to ask for it. And, um, but yeah, and I try to just... I try to expose him to everything. Like he's going to school in Park Slope, Brooklyn, which is predominantly white. I also went to. A, I was only black in my class, so I got to tenth grade, maybe eleventh wow. grade. Um, just because my parents always sent me to schools outside, but I think that they did so much of that and very little of letting me like embrace my own culture and people. And it was like it was always like you'll get better things if you go here. Mm-hmm. As opposed to like, there's also good in our community. So I've been trying to give him a balance of both. Um, and kind of just like, I don't know. I think a lot of it is just like learning what he's in, interested in and then mm-hmm. trying to figure out how to steer him the right way. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, he comes to a lot of events, but he doesn't know, like really know a lot about what's going on because he'll ask like random questions. It's like, okay, he doesn't get this yet. Mm-hmm. But that's okay. Like as long as he's exposed to it at a younger age, like exposed to the fact, like yes, there are hungry people in the world. Like yes, there are people that are locked up for crimes they didn't commit. Yes, if you see somebody in need, you should help them. Like little things, mm-hmm. and it's really just leading by example. And um, he, I remember one time, like learn like getting to know your kid's character is an interesting thing because like you can do <laughs> you can do the best you can or you don't know how they are like on their own or when they can make their own choices and you uh-huh. have no but once there was a guy who was like begging for money on the train and i did not have any money i was like i don't have it he's like you should just, just like just draw him some money i was like i'm not drawing him money i was like that's an insult he's like no ma it would be encouraging Aww. And that was cool. And so, like, it says a lot about, like, where his head is at. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, like, I think that's, that kind of sums up the parenting question. I'm trying to think if there's anything else. Oh, also faith. Like, so me and my little sister, like, we, 
started going to church because we wanted to. We had neighbors that mm-hmm. would disappear every weekend, mm-hmm. and we got tired of being the only kids on the block, so we just started going mm-hmm. with them. And so church and God has always been a choice for us. Mm-hmm. It was never something wow. that we, like, we grew up having to do. And I have friends that grew up having to go, and like they have like a serious resentment towards God, Bible, like, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And so I'm mindful about that too, because I want him to... I mean, I think the only way you can really combat things in the, like in this world and life is spiritually. Mm-hmm. And I want him to learn that, but I also want him to develop his own love of God. And that'll really come with life experiences. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's pretty much that. Mm-hmm. And then, sorry, you, we were talking about, oh, you said something and I really wanted to comment back on it, but I can't remember. About the healing through the... Painting or yeah, mm-hmm. it was I can't remember. Sorry. Healing and forgiveness. Yeah. Or oh, right. Oh yeah. Right. Oh, right. Your oppressor. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. It's a tricky thing. Right. But I don't know. It's hard for me to answer that, but I feel like I'm getting really, really close. Hmm. Um I think that I really do think that we need to combat things spiritually if we want to see anything happen on like this earthly level. Mm. And that's like, that's like a, me thinking that way and feeling that way is like a year in the making. Um, I started to call in, I'll give you guys a number if you want it, every midnight, every weekday midnight um, to this prayer line. My friend gave me the number like last June or whatever. Went and call and then like ended up in the hospital last year with, my first ear infection, and it was actually in both ears, mm-hmm. and I it got it right before I had to go to California and paint a mural, mm-hmm. and so I went <laughs> to California, I did the mural, and then like the day I got back, I went straight to the emergency room because it got really, really bad. And um, yeah, I don't know. I that was the day I called in. I was like in the back, I couldn't breathe, I couldn't wow. cry, I ran out of tears. Nobody in the hospital will help me. I just it was the only thing I could do. and But through, it's a young husband and wife that are based in Stanford, Connecticut. And that was the first day I called, but then I kept calling since since last July. And their, um, their approach to praying strategically um, and like combating things spiritually has really changed my life. Mm-hmm. And so I'm just, because now that's a huge part of my life, I'm trying to figure out how can that also be a big part of my work? Um, like when I was like debating whether I wanted to work in Rikers Island or not, actually I really didn't want to go, but I knew that like, I knew that this is something God wanted me to do. I just, I've had family members at Rikers before and I don't have like a really good relationship with that place. And it's just hard to go back and revisit those memories. But you know, the spirit led me to go and to like be really strategic. So one thing is that one thing that I have the kids do almost every time we meet is just some dreaming. Like in your ideal situation, if you could be anything you wanted to be and make the type of money you want to make and whatever, what would that be like? Um, also mentorship. I've been connecting my students with people who are professionals in the fields that they want to go in yeah. into on the outside, just because like. Get into the place where I know some people. And it's like, okay, now what do I do with these resources that are like my friends? 
So we have like a pen pal system going where they can write and like ask questions. If you want to be a hairstylist or a lawyer or whatever, connecting them with people on the outside who do that. Um, what else? I pray over my supplies. I like get them high fives when I'm leaving. <laughs> Just like little things. Um, but I feel that, I mean, a lot of my students have come home and now like, we're talking back and forth about making sure they get up, get work, like legal work that they could do, mm-hmm. so that they're not hungry, mm-hmm. but so that they also don't get back into trouble. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think that healing happens on many different levels. And I don't know, I've always loved teaching because it's never felt like work, but I, I didn't realize that like teaching is also a ministry in itself. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm trying to learn how to just do a better job at that and be really be present when I teach and not have a million things going on. Rikers helps because you can't bring your phones in. Mm-hmm. Um, but just, you know, being present, being prepared for class. If I say I'm going to bring something in, actually bringing it in, like, mm-hmm. so it's a lot. It becomes a lot. But the more help I have, the less, like, things like that become a burden. So, yeah. Last night you talked about um, being a product of the system. And so... I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about yeah. that journey and and where you feel like you are now and how mm-hmm. that impacts your parenting and your art and your activism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah. So I wasn't like a teenage mom, but you know, having a kid at twenty one, I still felt like a, like I was a teenager when I had my son. I felt like really young and unprepared. Um, throughout, I had left home, left home to move with my son's dad for, I was there probably for like two or three years before Pharaoh came, maybe it was two years. Um, and, you know, I just wasn't in a good place. Like financially, we were always struggling. That, that was a given. Um, but then like when I got pregnant and I like was eating for two, like a lot of things just became unacceptable um, and really, really hard to deal with. Um, There was a lot of our own personal drama, like unfaithfulness and cheating and all this stuff that was happening before. And like, we'd get get through it and I forgive him and move forward. But when I was pregnant, I could not deal with any of that. And so we were both really just at our worst and um, it went from arguing to like physical stuff. And then like, you know, like once a week you move out and pack all your stuff, I'm never coming back. And then you go back. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it wasn't like an ongoing thing. There were like three instances where things got physical. But the fact that that was happening, I was still there, was just all bad. Mm-hmm. And, but it's hard to like break out of cycles sometimes. And back to like speaking spiritually, like that the the physical stuff, abuse, none of that had ever happened before. Um, when we like before I was pregnant and we were together for about three years. So it really came as a surprise and learning what I've learned now, like I knew that his mom went through that. Um like even with his own dad. And uh that that was something that happened a lot in that household. Like even we had family that lived there with us, we were sharing the apartment. And it was just 
spiritually that existed. Domestic abuse was in that household. So it was only a matter of time until it happened to me. And that's really how I feel now because it, even when I think back on it, I'm like, I came out of where did that come from? And it was always like there, lingering. And so, you know, and then there was like also him growing up witnessing that. And I was like, okay. And like, it wasn't until something happened in front of my son that I was able to be like, okay, the, the cycle has to stop with him. Um, and it's like a big, it was hard. It was really hard to, to leave because we were trying, but I think that leaving was the best thing because like, it didn't get to the point. There was only one family member, probably to this day, or maybe two, that even know that that was happening. And I was able to leave without the drama, without the police being involved, without, okay. you know, court and all of this and that. And my son is able to, like, love both of his parents and not have to live with, like, us at our ugliest moment, like, for the rest of his life. So, you know, uh, I guess... And then literally that was like, I took that class and then like I woke up and a few months later I left because I was like, okay, I see what's happening. And that's that's the hardest part about being oppressed, like not being able to realize that like this is not how life has to be. Hmm. Um, so yeah. And then like now I feel free, like really liberated. Um, I would like to have a whole family, like I would love for the right person to come along. So that I don't have to do the single parenting thing because it's it's hard. <laughs> it's just not. It's it's clearly not designed to be this way because it's not easy. And I'm not about to be like, oh, I can do it by myself. No, I've been doing it, and I have family help. I have a lot of help, and like his dad helps too. Like he'll he'll take him every now and then, but it's not like a set schedule that I could depend on. Um. So. Yeah, I feel like I feel like I'm in a really good place now. Um, financially, things are always not up and down, but like sometimes I just don't know where something's coming from. But my faith has increased to the point where like I don't even think about money no more because, like I said, I've been hungry and received plates from God knows where, like full plates of food. When I know like tonight I'm not eating, <laughs> you know so. I have an interesting relationship with money. I could go, like, last June I quit all my jobs and just did art. And, like, everything that I needed was provided for. And I could not say that I came from any clocked-in hours or anything like that. It was just straight up feet and God stepping in. So that brings peace because you don't worry about the things other people worry about. Wow. So you talked a, a lot about, you talked a little bit about freedom and freedom from being oppressed. And last night's question was, what does freedom mm-hmm. mean to you? Mm-hmm. Um, felt like a really powerful question to me, especially in the space that we were in. Mm-hmm. Um, what, I guess, does freedom mean to you? Like what, does, I don't know, like what is, what would that look like to you? Um, I think that freedom is, there's something off about this painting, so I don't know what it is. 
Whatever. It's beautiful. They want portraits. <laughs> Give them portraits. <laughs> um, nobody's come come like forward and said that, but I'm getting the vibes. So I'm like, okay. It's just incredible. Like I'm watching. Uh-huh. I'm watching it oh unfold like oh seamlessly. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> I just. That's amazing. So um, as we're talking, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Sophia is live <laughs> painting a portrait. I should paint at the and, event and take donations. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't amazing. know how like East Hampton gets down. Like I don't know. Like what people give me. Yeah, yeah. they told totally yeah, they, they might totally not be wearing would. any makeup, but I know, <laughs> they they like a bucket and just bring some canvas. I was hoping you were going to bring artwork. I wanted to buy some of it. Looking mm-hmm. at your website, yeah, I'm so. gonna have a, I'm gonna have prints. So I have prints in the car for sale, and then and I wasn't gonna do that, and then I'll have these, and I guess these will be priced. I haven't decided that yet, but I think I should, especially these mm-hmm. letter yeah. ones. They're a little bit easier to part with than like, actual portraits. But, you know, I know that I want to, um, you know, whatever sells a percentage will go back to these folks. It's either legal funds, but I really want I really want to find some people that have, can spend big bucks to mm-hmm. a silent auction. Because people are coming home and they don't have anywhere to stay. So that's like part two of the problem. So, you know... People are literally coming home after 35 years, $20 to their name. And I know that I've seen people use art to raise a lot of money. So I'm like, what would it cost to get a house? Mm-hmm. And be like, okay, you get home and you have a place to stay. And you don't have to worry about food or any bills. Right. Just do whatever, pick up where you left off. That's what I really want to be able to do. Right. And they're so long and they're like, here are your clothes that you came with. It's nuts. It's nuts. It's nuts. So freedom to me um, would be having the ability to decide, um, like, to choose which path you want to take in life, decide what it is you want to do or accomplish or become or be, and having the ability to do that without anyone or anything standing in your way. Mm-hmm. permanently mm-hmm. So there's like temporary obstacles but I mean like permanent pushback um, yeah I think that that's, that would be my definition of freedom mm-hmm. really the ability to fulfill, fulfill one's purpose mm-hmm. is is a pretty dope liberating mm-hmm. feeling I think so really struggling with it. I couldn't answer it last night because I just... It's a tricky question. It, it just came. Is, it literally came yeah. to me. I was writing the work plan. It was going to be what what brought you here. Mm. And then I was praying on it. And I was like, I see this. I was like, okay, that's a crazy question. All right. <laughs> it's a good question. It's a, I think it was a really good question. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Because it's not something that you think about all the time, but it's something that you feel. Right. right, like I either feel free, I feel oppressed, I feel like I have all of these obstacles in my way, mm-hmm. or I imagine there's many people who don't um, feel that, right. and I can't imagine not feeling that. Right, like not feeling like, like having that feeling that I can do anything, I can say anything, I could be in any space mm-hmm. and be completely comfortable and feel at ease in my skin and not having to worry about me 
you know, like mm-hmm. when I have to worry about how people see me affecting how they interact with me right. in any space that I'm in. Right. But. Right. No, it's real. It's real. And, uh, yeah, I guess I, I should really start to spend some time thinking about how I really feel about the answer to that question because I really didn't think about it until yesterday. But the project is called To Be Free. Mm-hmm. And it came from, well, it's, it used to be called the I Am Free Project. And then partially inspired by Nina Simone's song, but then also my friend I'm like witnessed, I guess, a bunch of people back to back passed away last year around this time, one of my good friends. Mm-hmm. And he said that he just started free riding. He was on an airplane on his way back. Mm-hmm. And he was just talking about all the little freedoms, like freedom to get up every day, freedom to make money, the freedom to create art, the freedom to express itself, mm-hmm. uh, to be free to this, to be free to do that. And then I just wrote down to be free, and I was like, I'm going to change the name of the project because it, it's, a, it's a good question. It's a statement and a question mm-hmm. at the same time. Can you talk a little bit more about the project? Yeah. Free? So the To Be Free project um, started a few years ago, and um, the goal of the project is to highlight the narratives, stories, and experiences of people who have been politically incarcerated in the United States for activism, for their activism in the 60s and the 70s, mm-hmm. particularly members of the Black Panther and Black Liberation Movement. Um, yeah, and so it's an ongoing process of writing letters, going on visits, um, communicating with family, friends, supporters of political prisoners, and learning the best approach to sharing their story through visual art um, and sound and video. Lately. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's a project that God put on my heart uh, about seven years ago, and I really started taking it seriously about four years ago. Mm-hmm. And um, since the project started, there have been some successes. So some folks have come home. My mentor's husband, um, Sekou Odinga, in 2014, um, Maliki Shakur Latin, in December 6th of 2016, and Zolo Azania on February 8th of 2017. Um, Abdullah Majid passed away in prison um, in 26, March of 2016, and so did Mondo Wilanga. Um, most of them have medical issues that they're combating mm-hmm. and are in urgent need of medical care and are being denied that from the prison that are keeping them. And, yeah. Oh my gosh, I had a question. <laughs> Like, left me. No, no, sorry. It's just like, when you hear the names and you hear the dates of release and just imagining that these are folks from the Black Panther Party and the Black Liberation Movement and imagining how long they have spent, how much of their lives they've spent incarcerated. Yeah, it's crazy. Solo spent 35 years. Hmm. Maliki, I think, 37 the folks that are still behind, 41, 45, some of them in solitary confinement. Um, so it's real. It's really crazy. 
you've done some portraits of folks of when they were younger and before they went in mm -hmm. and portraits of them now and you called it the passage of time. Mm -hmm. um, and I felt, I don't know, it felt so powerful to me just, just thinking of that passage of time and like what does it take to get from this point in, in a timeline to the next point and mm -hmm. spending your, you know, day after day mm -hmm. behind bars um, fighting for me, really, you know, mm -hmm. like fighting for me and fighting yeah. for my children. And I did an interview with Zogo who was recently released. Um, it's supposed to go into a magazine. And one of the questions was, what would you, what advice would you give to my students, my students at mm -hmm. Rikers? Mm -hmm. And he was like, don't serve the time, allow the time to serve you. Mm -hmm. And he said that, you know, he was always building himself up, educating himself. He became mm -hmm. like, a legal aid in the prison for other prisoners mm -hmm. to help them with their cases, a mentor to some of the guards. He's like, you don't sit there and just let the time go by. You find ways to be active and productive dealing with your circumstances. And um, I can't really wrap my head around how they've been able to endure, but one thing that a lot of people would expect is for them to be angry or bitter mm -hmm. or anything, but they have like a strong sense of like, you know, I made the choice to sacrifice for my people. And if uh -huh. I had to do it again, I'd do it again. And as soon as I get out, I'm going to continue the work that I left off with. Uh -huh. um, and so there's like a spirit of endurance and I guess just a strong sense of self and purpose so that it's, it becomes less about like, it becomes less about the time for them and more about the reason that they're there. But for me, I want folks to like understand, understand how much time has passed. Mm -hmm. And also, when you think about that, it's like these people were the first organization to physically stand up against police brutality. And this was not that long ago. So it's like mm -hmm. the passage of time shows how many years, how long it's been, but also how recent their movement is. Mm -hmm. This is their living history. You can call up people who are in the Panthers that are free and talk to them right now. Yeah. And we're not doing that. And I think that that is a serious fault of a lot of people, organizations, movements that are happening because why are you trying to reinvent the wheel right. when it's been mm -hmm. done and almost really successfully? Mm -hmm. If it wasn't for like, who would have thought the government would have infiltrated them in that way and sent agents in there and like mm -hmm. lied with mail and like all the stuff that happened people getting killed in their bed while they're asleep like they were almost successful it took like a, a le serious level of wickedness and strategy to bring them down and so because they were brought down in that way and no one has ever had to publicly apologize or admit to what's been done even though it's published everywhere mm -hmm. it's in documentaries everybody knows but it was never the un never came in and like slap them on the wrist or anything. So that means that whatever the strategies were back then, that's exactly what they're doing now to the Absolutely. 100th power, because mm -hmm. now we have cell phones and everybody's posting their protests online before they happen. And there's no element of surprise and everything's under control. And I feel that even, even with that being said, I still feel that if people would just connect to these folks, we could still learn a lot from them and not have to go through the same mm -hmm. crap. Yeah. Um, yeah.
there's a lot of stuff repeating. There's a lot. There's a lot that's happening here. The I think there was like a guy, whatever that guy was, who was like accused of being a sniper and like shooting police officers. I think that was in Texas. I don't know where that was. It was in Dallas. Dallas, mm-hmm. like the same. Like first of all, there was no questioning. There was no trial. Mm-hmm. They found him and they sent a bomb in and blew the man up. Now, the stuff that was in the bomb that they used to blow him up is the same chemical used in the bomb to blow up the house where the individuals of the move organization mm-hmm. and their children were. The 11 people that got killed in that bombing that happened also unfairly and inhumanely. And so there's a lot repeating and people are not paying attention. It was like, okay, good, they took care of the problem. We don't even know if that was the right dude. No. We know he's affiliated with Black Lives Matter, just like officers would get killed back in the day and they'd be like, well, mm-hmm. doesn't matter if it's right or wrong, this person's a panther, so they must be guilty. Mm-hmm. And now, so we see that, but we have no reference. People don't even, nobody even said anything after that. They were like, wow, that guy was messed up, he deserved it. Mm-hmm. We don't even know if it was him. And there's no way to find out now because he's dead. Nope. And I have I have issues with history repeating and people acting really ignorant um, because if this happened if their movement was a hundred years ago and I was making paintings about people that passed on I would have a lot less to say but they're still alive. What do you want the impact or takeaway of your work to be? I hope for a few things. I hope to one day soon be able to wrap up, ship my work, to travel the world, and to go on a tour where these folks who I'm painting will actually be given the talk about their own lives and getting paid, and I can move on to another project. Um, I would like to see the people that I paint come home mm. and not come home and be broke and hungry and struggling, but come home comfortably and be able to share their story with activists, with the next generation, while they're still alive. I think that that would bring them great joy. And I think that that would be really valuable to us. Mm-hmm. Um, so I really hope that either the work brings enough support in people, numbers, or maybe just the right person with enough pull to make something happen, to bring them home. Or I don't know what it will take. It's literally, I don't have the answer to how. All I know is that spiritually there's something that happens when you're behind bars, yet your likeness is being painted on the outside and you're able to travel on the outside. Mm-hmm. Yet you're still where you're, where you're at. Um, I think that I hope the work will contribute to the actual freedom. I hope this is not just, I'm not just doing it in vain. I believe that they will come home and that when they come home, it'll be a body of work and uh, fulfilling work to be done with the paintings, with traveling, with young activists, all the people that I connect with. Like, imagine the next time this work is in East Hampton, Joelle is here talking about himself, mm-hmm. as opposed to me. Like, I don't need to be there. It's not my story. Um, so that's one thing. Um, another thing is that I do want to be able to either become wealthy enough myself or gain the support through a nonprofit organization to create a space for maybe not just for political prisoners or maybe maybe just for political prisoners but 
I mean, once this project is through, then maybe it'll be for people who are wrongfully incarcerated. But like a safe haven where there can be mentorship, a place to live um, comfortably for primarily for the people who are coming home. But then as the project goes into its next phases, I know it'll serve like another set um, of folks. I also want people to be intrigued enough to do their own research and study. Like for me, everything, almost everything I've painted came from being moved by a documentary. Mm -hmm. So if somebody could be moved to do something, I'm like, if you don't care about political prisoners, cool. Not everybody has to care about them. But maybe there's one thing that sparks your interest and then you move forward. Um, There are different things that keep people up at night. So Mm -hmm. I'm hoping for artists, like the students that I teach, people who do want to become artists, I encourage them, like, we don't need more portraits of Beyonce. Like, find an issue, mm-hmm. any issue, and stick to it until something changes. And so I hope to inspire activism or just people not caring so much about themselves, and caring about mm-hmm. something, somebody else, something bigger than them, somebody else, anything that is opposite of what, of, like, the selfie culture that we live in mm-hmm. um and then yeah for for activists current activists i think that i just really want them to know the truth about what happens to people that stick it stick up to you know the powers that be they need to know mm-hmm. it's only right that they know because for some of them if they knew what happened they wouldn't get involved and for the people that know and do get involved hopefully they like find the right approach um I think that learning of these stories and these men and women and their resilience and their courage is can be inspiring to anyone, whether you're five years old or you know an elder who never knew what happened with the Panthers. So, really, just hoping to open eyes. Watching you paint, I, I'm not even sure who you're painting right now. Oh, this is a young Julio Montekin. It's actually the same. painting that's over there but this is one of his letters so i figured i'll do the painting cut him out piece him on top of it watching you paint him feels like it feels intimate to me like Mm -hmm. there's a connection to yeah like wanting to know more Mm -hmm. and so what's the connection that develops between you and the people i mean i feel like i know julio i've never met julio He's on my list of, now that I have a new car as of last week, <laughs> which means that I can just go place. I used to have a car, but it, it used to not be reliable. And But Jalil, I've been running Jalil for a while now, and so it's kind of like you know the person behind the painting. Um, you want to see them succeed. It's kind of like the love you would have for a really good friend or mm-hmm. a brother or a father figure even. And... Kind of just not wanting to disappoint them or wanting to make them proud. Like it goes hand in hand. Um, doing work, painting people who are alive, who can give you feedback and yay, nay, or like, I hate this color. Like I, I've, I've, done, I've done portraits of folks, like not political prisoners, but people who come to my studio mm-hmm. and I was like trying to tell their story and they'd be like, oh my God, why did you paint this man? He was a womanizer. He can't be in the painting. Like he can't be present because he did this, that, and the third. Mm-hmm. And so you'll know the history, like the overview of someone's story, but you don't know the details. And that's mm-hmm. why I like 
painting people are still alive. That's why wet paint is my artist name because I really love working on folks who are here to say what they think and feel about the work, mm. as vulnerable as that makes me. Mm. Um, but yes, it is It is a really intimate thing. Um, I sing to my paintings, <laughs> not like just, not to sing to them, but like I sing while I paint. Mm-hmm. Um, and whatever I'm going through or dealing with tends to come out in the work as well. Mm. And yeah, you do really get to like, get to know a person painting and it's interesting because a lot a lot of times with them like I'll paint them and then meet them after and to walk like meet a face that's moving and breathing that you only saw still um, that's also a really interesting thing when that happens do you typically get their permission to paint them oh yeah, yeah. I've, I've painted one person without the permission and that's because I just felt like he would want me to and then I found out um, he's another political prisoner Ed Poindexter he was the co-defendant of Mondo Wielanga. So after Mondo passed away, I was like, well, I have to finish the story and paint his co-defendant. But I was, um, I did the painting, and then this woman emailed me and was like, I love the work you're doing. Oh, this is how she found me. Because she went to visit him, and he just had open heart surgery. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that. I didn't know anything about his medical issue or situation. He had open heart surgery, and she got to visit him at the hospital and saw my letter with the images of my work and was mm-hmm. like, he's really happy that you did it. He's not well enough to write and he thanks you. And so that's the only time I ever painted someone. Mm-hmm. But I, I really do like to have some type of relationship with them before I start their portrait. Mm-hmm. Or at least, at least let them know like, hey, I'm gonna do yours next. I write everybody, but mm-hmm. I can only paint one person at a time. And so they've been Really, some of them have been really patient with me because it's been a few years now. Did he ever write you back? No, I, but I, I would like to go visit him. I don't think he's physically able to write. Mm-hmm. And I think they like, even the letters, like he's been able to look at the pictures, but maybe not read the letters. Yeah. Can you tell us a little, about, a little bit about who it is you're painting now? And yeah. um, I guess correspondence that you've had with him. Okay, so this is Jalil He is His legal name is Anthony Bottom. He is a U.S. health political prisoner, currently incarcerated upstate. He was at Attica Correctional Facility for years and um, just moved. And literally, like, as soon as someone starts getting any type of publicity or, like, because we'll put, so for example, with Jalil, Every second and fourth Wednesday right now, everyone does a post about him, calls the Department of Corrections, calls the facility that's holding him, talks about his story, okay. advocates for his freedom. And so as soon as someone starts getting any attention, they'll move them to another hmm. prison or they'll accuse them. He was accused of doing something of like coordinating a protest or some 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 march that everybody knows is happening and he was corresponding with the people putting it together. So they put him in the hole for like a few months in solitary because of that. And so it's like a constant battle. Mind you, this man now, he's, I'll show you a photo of him. He's an elder. Like it's crazy mm-hmm. that they're even dealing with this. Um, but they're very strong and they don't let it get to them. And um, Jalil is a brilliant writer. He has a book called Escaping the Prism, P-R-I-S-M, 
um, with a collection of his writings and um, poetry. And yeah, he's probably one of the most brilliant people I've ever corresponded with or met. Um, and he's very articulate. And I'm like scared to bring certain things up because I know in debate, I'll lose, I'll lose. <laughs> um, yeah. I don't think I've met any family members of Jalil. Whose family members have you met? Um, Kamal Siddiqui's daughter, Kasusi Siddiqui, is one of my good friends. Um, Russell Maroon Schultz's family I know pretty well. I met Veronza Bauer's nephew or cousin, second cousin, not too long ago. Um, Abdul Majid, who passed away. His wife is uh, an advocate for political prisoners. Um, a decent amount of people, but I know a lot of the people that whose families live in New York, I mean, they know that. Mm -hmm. But people live all over the place. How do those meetings typically happen? Um, art shows, film fest. Most of the people mm -hmm. I've met at the Black Panther Film Festival, which happens mm -hmm. in New York every year. And so that was like my intro to them. And then the first year that I met them, I had some of my work on display. And that was pretty much it. They accepted me as like family after that. <laughs> um, and it's rare that like I'm meeting someone outside of like an event mm -hmm. for the first time. It's usually there are fundraisers that happen every year to support their legal defenses, mm -hmm. their commissary, money, and all that stuff. So I'll usually meet people for the first time at one of those events, and then sometimes we'll stay in touch. Sometimes we stay connected, or sometimes we just see each other at the next event. Do they usually know that you're in correspondence with? Yeah, because like they all they'll say, "Oh, I heard so much about you, my dad, when he calls." Or... So they'll they'll know of me, and I okay. think that the work is known in the political prisoner family community mm -hmm. now, definitely now, if not before. So there's a lot of people who are like, oh my God, I've been wanting to meet you, mm -hmm. which is cool. <laughs> um, but you know, a lot of people I just run into, we just end up in the same room. Yeah. And sometimes political prisoners will say, reach out to my mom, reach out to my daughter. She'll have this photo, she'll, she'll know yeah. how to get this info or whatever. So there's some of that that happens too. I can't believe that you started this painting. <laughs> that absolutely like a piece of it's funny because I hate, <laughs> working, hate working small. I hate working small. But I'm actually having a really good time. I think if I go from big exhausting stuff and uh -huh. then sit down, then I can enjoy it. <laughs> so like after this, I need to go back to the wall and then come back and maybe do one more. But I feel like this is a good way to do a portrait without having to like waste. I don't know. Like I like donating art, but it's like come on. <laughs> no, how, that's cool. Yeah. That's cool. I guess how I didn't donate to any fundraiser in New York this year. Because I was like, oh I was like at events watching my work go for thousands, watching twenty thousand get raised and then simultaneously like not having a way to pay to get on the train to go home. And that did something wow. to me. Yeah. But my life isn't like that anymore, but I just I have to really believe in a cause to donate. Mm -hmm. And I also need to have enough inventory. Like, I can't. Yeah. I don't have interns, like, finishing up my dirty work. I've literally been doing these pieces. And so when I get more, when I have, like, a bigger inventory, then, then, then I will be able to set aside, let's make 10 paintings this year that I know I'm giving away. That's different yeah. from, like, being asked, hey, do you have a piece you can give? 
Can you talk a little bit about, um, I guess, what brought you to Western Massachusetts and the organizations that brought you here? And yeah. So, um, I am here through two organizations. One is called Laudable Productions, and that's through Cassandra Holden, who's the studio I'm in right now. And the other one is um, the Rosenberg Fund for Children. And the Rosenberg Fund for Children is really cool because they, for the past, I think, 20 plus years, they have been raising funds for families of political prisoners to make sure that their children and grandchildren can go and visit them. And that's really cool to me. Um, I met the Rosenberg on um, one of their board members, Jen, when uh, in the city in January, we both had like artwork in a political prisoner calendar. And she was telling me a little bit about what they do. And I saw like how the families that were there at that event interacted with her. And because basically like, she was the re their organization. It's the reason why they were able to visit there. Mm -hmm. dads and moms and grandparents, etc. Um, a lot of political prisoners, they are sent to prisons that are outside of the state where they're from to make it harder for the family to visit them. So like, even though the family may be from Brooklyn, you know, the political prisoner will be in California or something crazy like that. So it costs a lot to travel, be accommodated, to get from an airport to a prison, because that's always like another two or three hour drive. And the Rosenberg Fund coordinates all of that. So it's been cool. To, we, we talked, we dreamed about working together, but we didn't know that this would come up. And so Laudable Productions is putting together Mill Pond Live, which is a festival happening every Saturday. This Saturday, it started last week, it's happening this week, and for four more weeks after that. And this week's theme is art and activism. So when they found out the theme, I think they reached out to me, and and that's that's how I did. And you've been here for I've been here a week. since Tuesday. Right. Oh uh, no, I've been here since Monday night. But and then we it got really dark, and I was like, I'm not going outside. But I've been here since Tuesday. I spent one day in Boston. I'm like, I spent one evening night in Boston <laughs> to go roller skating because I'm a <laughs> big fan of roller skating. Big fan. I am an active part of the roller skate community and culture. <laughs> that's a better way to... <laughs> that's an understatement. I have spent my last money to go roller skate before. Less than five years ago. Um, um, but my dad is a roller skater. Me and my sister grew up going to the rink. And it's its, its own culture, literally. Mm. And we didn't know that it existed outside of New York until a few years ago. So now... I try to keep the habit of wherever I go, anywhere, I just pack my skates. <laughs> and I, there's a skate community group on Facebook. I posted on the group and I was like, hey, I'm in Massachusetts. Are there any rinks on here? And a friend of mine, could call him a friend now, but up until this week, I didn't really know who he was. Um, because you don't really know skaters. Like you see each other in motion on the floor. So you know each other by face, not by <laughs> name. And every time I saw him, we always were skating in New Jersey. So I just assumed he lived up there. And he was like, oh, my parents own a rink. You can come and get in for free. So he, he actually, his parents have owned a skating rink in Massachusetts, Boston, for 20 years. Wow. I never knew that. It's amazing. And it was amazing. And we did get in for free. And it was a great, <laughs> it was a great night. It was a great night. And I have two cousins who 
are in school. One is in school, one who's visiting, also in Boston. So I spent one night out there, but I've been in East Hampton. Other than that, <laughs> except for my skating. I've never roller skated before. It's fun. I've been rollerblading, but I don't know that I've ever been on four wheels. Oh my God, that was every Saturday <laughs> <You> afternoon. <know. laughs> get dropped off at the roller skate rink with my friends. <laughs> Every Saturday. <laughs> the rink was the year I got pregnant. No joke. Oh, and like friends had to move away. Like they closed the last rink in Brooklyn in 2008, I believe. And everybody's life went left. It's really crazy. So that's another ultimate goal is to make enough money to open a rink. That would be amazing. So that my child and his friends can have somewhere to go. Because right now... You don't have a lot of money. There's nothing you can do in New York without okay. getting harassed as a team by police. So is there, I don't know, is there anything else that you want us to know about your work or how people can get involved in um, activism yes. for political prisoners? Yes. So my website is sophia-dawson.com. So that's S-O-P-H-I-A dash dawson.com it has like a lot of my work my statements some interviews just if you wanted to learn more about me it hasn't been updated in a while i'll probably update it again like i try to update it every six months or so with new work or current work then my instagram is i am wet paints that's i-a-m-w-e-t-p-a-i-n-t and so my twitter is also the same and if you want to learn more about political prisoners and how you can help, you can visit the JerichoMovement.com. And that's pretty much where I learned a lot of info. It has like a list of who they are, but then also has every person, almost every person has a link to their own website, their own campaign, and videos, interviews, info about their cases, etc. And you can message me on Instagram if you need to get in touch with me. I'll respond. So I literally, like, I'll go through my texts once a week, my emails once a week, Instagram messages once a week. I try to respond to letters every week. And that's it. Because I'm like, back in the day, you couldn't get in touch with someone at any moment. And right. I'm just going to pretend that it's still like that. Because so I don't think it's healthy for me to always... I couldn't work if I had if I answered every text message. So one question I did want to um, ask is about your name, Wet Paint. Or what, how did you come up with Wet Paint? Wet Paint started... Kind of started when I was in high school. Um, I went to high school in the city, and I've always taken the train. Well, since high school, through college, always taken the train from East New York, Brooklyn, to the city, which is like hour and change. And yeah, they have wet paint signs all over the train stations in New York because they don't fix the trains; they just keep painting them over to make them look better. Mm -hmm. They don't fix anything. So like literally, fill up the paint. Everything underground in New York is rotting. But when they're done, they don't. Like when the paint dries, nobody goes back and takes the sign down. It just it's just dry paint with the wet paint sign. So in high school, <laughs> randomly, this is before I even like was taking art seriously. I just started taking the signs. I'm like, why are they keeping the signs up? So I started a collection of the signs and then didn't do anything with them. But then my godmother um, spent five years behind bars, and when I was Halfway through it, I saw that like her support system had gone down a bit, not a lot of family members were around or going to see her or write her, and she was like a really, 
She's like a second mom to me and a really big help to everybody. And so I started doing paintings about her because she was also really, um, she's like a model and muse for a lot of people back in the 80s. So I started working from her old portfolio, making these paintings. And then I put together a show called Wet Paint and it was talking about like her being a work in progress, mm-hmm. keeping her alive on the outside. Mm-hmm. And then after that, it just stuck. Like that was the title of the art show, but it just made sense with all the work that came after that because it's always about people being works in progress and how you can contribute to that progress, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, that's, that's kind of wet paint in that show. So I'm wet paint, you're wet paint. My students are, my neighborhood is, even neighborhoods that change and like kick people out, like everything's still a work in progress. And it's never too late to change. We are all wet paint. Yeah. Work in progress, it's true. So then how do you know when you're done with your painting? <laughs> I, I mean, every time I think you're there, you add another layer, and I'm like, oh my god, it's even better than it was before. I don't really know. I um, I literally, I, I, I realized, like, usually, especially the big paintings, I've always been able to get something done in three sessions. So three sessions could be six hours if I had two hours every time, or it could be a lot longer, depending on the mm-hmm. amount of time. It could be two hours, like... It just depends on how much time I have. Usually after I touch something three times, I'm just done. Or not done, but I'm already, like I'm doing this, but I'm already thinking about the next one. So that happens a lot. And I've been trying to get better at slowing down, but it's really hard for me because I'm always, like these paintings that I'm doing now, I wrote out that I wanted to do them back in, that was like April. And Mm -hmm. I couldn't do them right that moment, but the ideas came, so I wrote Mm -hmm. it down. And then it's like, okay, now get to them. And then as I'm doing these, I'm knowing, I'm getting ideas about the next next set of paintings that will come out. Um, but yeah, as soon as it looks like the person, I'm pretty satisfied. But I like painters that get really, really detailed, like almost lifelike, almost photograph-like. Um, but I haven't gotten there yet because I don't know if I have the patience or I don't know if it's really necessary. Like that, that too. I don't know if it needs to look like a photo. I think a photo is a photo and a painting is a painting. But like the one I started over here, like I started that yesterday and it feels like it's done, but I'm sure if I went back and worked on it like one more day tomorrow, it would pop out even more. <laughs> but I also really love how it looks. So I mean, sometimes I just gotta sleep on it. Yeah. Um, with the letters, I have no idea. These letters are brand new. I've never worked with words or giant paper or anything that's not portrait. They're a serious experiment. But I really like them a lot. I love the letters because just reading like the first lines of the letters, it's like literally pure poetry. Mm -hmm. It is my dear Sophia. It is my sincere hope that finds you all in very best of everything grateful for this night. Yeah. Right. Dear Sophia. Thank you very much for your kind words and support of my poems. I am in total agreement with you that love is the abiding principle that all human beings should seek to garner and cultivate in their daily lives. Like that's that's jealous. I said he's, but it's like, but it's too, it's so powerful. Like, and I feel like, you know, we have this vision of people being incarcerated and being down and. I don't know. Maybe that's me, and I've no, watched no. too much Oz. 
um, <laughs> as a teenager, but like those aren't the words that mm-hmm. you would assume would come yeah. out mm-hmm. um, of a prison cell, I guess. Um, mm-hmm. But also, like, it's just, I don't know. It's so, it's just beautiful. No, I totally agree. It is, yeah. it's very surprising and shocking. That's, that's why I realized, like, okay, this is what's missing from the work. Mm-hmm. People don't know, they won't know who they are in the paintings. That's yeah. right. It's so interesting because when you think about men in prison, the people mm-hmm. in prison, you just make assumptions. Mm-hmm. Like, they're just automatic... And I'm sure, like, specifically black men, mm-hmm. you're not thinking about the story mm-hmm. or the intelligence mm-hmm. or their courage. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, the, the depth of their stories is so much more. It's not, they're not my words. That's no. the, the cool part. It's, like, it's not your words, it's but like it's an amazing me. way to add their words oh, yeah. with their portraits mm-hmm. To, mm-hmm. to the art, like. It really does give you a better idea of who they are. Like seeing his face, mm-hmm. like wow, what a beautiful black man face. Look at those lips. <laughs> but, <laughs> but then at the same time, to see that face and to read his words mm-hmm. gives you a better glimpse of who he is. Like his soul, just amazing. And I also feel like I. Like, you were talking about your mood or where you are when you're painting. Mm -hmm. And so I watched how the colors shifted Mm -hmm. throughout the time. And so, like, I almost feel like it's a glimpse not only into him but into you. Mm -hmm. To see the dark and light and Mm -hmm. how you bring them together. And just, like, it's, yeah, it's really cool. Yeah. It's, that's, like, that's the other part that people keep asking. Where are you at in the world? I'm like, you can figure that out when I'm like dead. <laughs> let, that be, let that be some like art student's job on right. like, I can't answer that. Oh. I don't think that's my job. <laughs> like let let an art critic or art historian or someone who like, wants to write <laughs> and study that or write about that because I don't have time to think about that. Who has time for that? Like these folks need to get out. But um, I'm going to be in a program at the Whitney Museum for a year. Um, uh, it's a studio. I'm going to have a studio at the Whitney in New York. And so I'm going to be around art critics and curators mm-hmm. and other artists and people who expect you to be able to talk art talk, which is very different from the, the way I yeah. talk about my work. So uh, I'm curious about that. Maybe a language will develop, or maybe I'll be like that rebel. I have no idea. But <laughs> I think it's important. You're as the artist, like this is your talk. You yeah. speak with your paint. Yeah. So there's yeah, like you figure it out. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. But I have like artists I really look up to. Like when they interview about their work, they're really good. They're like they give these people what they want. It's really giving people the language that they want to hear. So. It could be that there are words to talk about my work, but I think that a lot of that is technique-based, and I just play. I come, and I play. You just gave us an hour and 20 minutes <laughs> of words about your work. It's wow. incredible. So, <laughs> and just on that last point, one of the things that we are hoping to do in this project mm-hmm. is to make art accessible. Mm-hmm. And so I think when, you know... 
you go into a place like the MoMA or the Met and you feel like you can't connect with the mm -hmm. artist because you don't have yeah. the vernacular. Right. You know, it's you true. don't, you it's don't true. understand technique, mm -hmm. but you know, you want to feel something mm -hmm. like that. I feel like because what you're painting is so powerful to be able to talk about it authentically yeah. to anyone is what connects them to your work and to the people that the story you're trying to convey. And to me, that's more important than like, I don't even know what artsy big words are. I don't know that I don't get them. <laughs> Four years of undergrad and arts administration class. That's when I realized that, like, oh wow, because I did arts administration and like people in that program really want to run museums and this and that. And I was yeah. like, who are you? That was so long. that was a hard time, but it was a good it was good to take because I learned the whole business side of the art world, yeah. which every artist should learn. But that's that's later in my career, or maybe sometime soon when I get hired to teach that. I'll teach them everything. I because I had to like learn it as I went. I'm like, why well, get a degree if you don't even, you get an art degree, you don't learn how to make a penny as an artist. Like most other degrees teach you something, but we just learn how to express and talk about yeah. it. Mm -hmm. okay. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you so Yay. much. This is amazing. To learn more about the Creative Justice Lab and to read the blog, visit creativejusticelab.org. Have an idea for the podcast? Reach out at creativejusticelab at gmail.com. Thank you for listening to the Creative Justice Lab podcast.